This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello and a Happy New Year to you from the Witnesses of History podcast. And this edition, all our stories come from London. And we start on the 3rd of January in 1911 with this report by Philip Gibbs. Pursuing a gang of jewel robbers who had killed a policeman, the police cornered suspects, including it was thought a dangerous criminal called Peter the Painter, in 100 Sydney Street, Mile End Road. The affair caused an outcry against foreign immigrants, political refugees and the East End anarchist underworld of Russian and German Jews, to which the Sydney Street gunmen were thought to belong. This is the Siege of Sydney Street, 3rd of January, 1911. For some reason, which I have forgotten, I went very early that morning to the Chronicle office and was greeted by the news editor with a statement that a hell of a battle was raging in Sydney Street. He advised me to go and look at it. I took a taxi and drove to the corner of that street where I found a dense crowd observing the affair as far as they dared peered round the angle of the walls from adjoining streets. Heedless at the moment of danger, which seemed to me ridiculous, I stood boldly opposite Sydney Street and looked down its length of houses. Immediately in front of me, four soldiers of one of the guards' regiments lay on their stomachs, protected from the dirt of the road by newspaper sandwich boards, firing their rifles at a house halfway down the street. Another young guardsman, leaning against a wall, took random shots at intervals while he smoked a woodbine. As I stood near him, he winked and said, What a game! It was something more than a game. Bullets were flicking off the wall like peas, plugging holes into the dirty yellow brick and ricocheting fantastically. One of them took a neat chip out of a policeman's helmet and he said, Well, I'll be blowed, and laughed in a foolish way. It was before the war when we learned to know more about the meaning of bullets. Another struck a stick on which a journalistic friend of mine was leaning in an easy, graceful way. His support and his dignity suddenly departed from him. That's funny, he said seriously, as he saw his stick cut neatly in half at his feet. A cinematograph operator, standing well inside Sydney Street, was winding his handle vigorously, quite oblivious of the whiz of bullets which were being fired at a slanting angle from the house, which seemed to be the target of the prostrate guardsman. A large police inspector of high authority shouted a command to his men, What's all that nonsense? Clear the people back. Clear them right back. We don't want a lot of silly corpses lying around. A cordon of police pushed back the dense crowd, treading on the toes of those who would not move fast enough. I found myself in a group of journalists. Get back there, shouted the police. But we were determined to see the drama out. It was more sensational than any movie show. Immediately opposite was a tall gin palace, the rising sun. Some strategists said, that's the place for us. We raced across before the police could outflank us. A Jewish publican stood in the doorway sullenly. What do you want? he asked. Your roof, said one of the journalists. A quid each and worth it, said the Jew. At that time, before the era of paper money, some of us carried golden sovereigns in our pockets, one to a quid. Most of the others did, but as usual, I had not more than 18 pence. 
A friend lent me the necessary coin which the Jew slipped into his pocket as he led me past. Twenty of us at least gained access to the roof of the rising sun. It was a good vantage point, or OP as we should have called it later in history. It looked right across to the house in Sydney Street in which Peter the painter and his friends were defending themselves to the death. A tall, thin house of three storeys with dirty window blinds. In the house, immediately opposite, were some more guardsmen with pillows and mattresses stuffed into the windows in the nature of sandbags as used in trench warfare. We could not see the soldiers, but we could see the effect of their intermittent fire, which had smashed every pane of glass and kept chipping off bits of brick in the anarchist's abode. The street had been cleared of all onlookers, but a group of detectives slunk along the walls on the anarchist side of the street at such an angle that they were safe from the slanting fire of the enemy. They had to keep very close to the wall because Peter and his pals were dead shots and maintained something like a barrage fire with their automatics. Any detective or policeman who showed himself would have been sniped in a second and these men were out to kill. The thing became a bore as I watched it for an hour or more, during which time Mr Winston Churchill, who was then Home Secretary, came to take command of active operations, thereby causing an immense amount of ridicule in next day's papers. With a bowler hat pushed firmly down on his bulging brow and one hand in his breast pocket like Napoleon on the field of battle, he peered round the corner of the street and afterwards, as he learned, as we learned, ordered up some field guns to blow the house to bits. That never happened for a reason which we on the rising sun were quick to see. In the top floor room of the anarchist's house we observed a gas jet burning and presently some of us noticed the white ash of burnt paper fluttering out of a chimney pot. The burning documents, said one of my friends. They were burning more than that. They were setting fire to the house, upstairs and downstairs. The window curtains were first to catch a light, then volumes of black smoke through which little tongues of flame licked up, poured through the empty window frames. They must have used paraffin to help the progress of the fire, for the whole house was burning with amazing rapidity. Did you ever see such a game in London? exclaimed the man next to me on the roof of the public house. For a moment I thought I saw one of the murderers standing on the windowsill, but it was a blackened curtain which suddenly blew outside the window frame and dangled on the sill. A moment later I had one quick glimpse of a man's arm with a pistol in his hand. He fired, and there was a quick flash. At the same moment a volley of shots ran out from the guardsman opposite. It is certain that they killed the man who had shown himself, for afterwards they found his body, or a bit of it, with a bullet through the skull. It was not long afterwards that the roof fell in with an upward rush of flame and sparks. The inside of the house, from top to bottom, was a furnace. The detectives, with revolvers ready, now advanced in Indian file. One of them ran forward and kicked at the front door. It fell in and a sheet of flame leaped out. No other shot was fired from within. Peter the painter and his fellow bandits were charred cinders in the bonfire they had made. Well, that was a report on one set of criminals in 1911, January 1911. Here are some more London criminals from a few hundred years earlier. This is the Recorder of London reporting to Lord Burley in 1581, as recorded by William Fleetwood. Upon Wednesday last, a French merchant in a bag sealed delivered to a carrier's wife of Norwich £40 to be carried to Norwich. 
She secretly conveyed the money to a house a good way off from the inn, and within a quarter of an hour the French merchant came again to see his money packed up. But the woman denied that ever she received any one penny with such horrible protestations as I never heard before. Mr. Secretary Walsingham wrote me his letters for the aid of the Frenchman, and after great search made, the money was found and restored. She, not knowing of the same, I examined her in my study privately, but no means she would confess the same. But she did bequeath herself to the devil, both body and soul, if she had the money or ever saw it. And this was her craft, that she then had not the money. And indeed she said the truth, for it was either at her friend's, where she left it, or else delivered. And then I, perceiving her drift, I asked her whether the French merchant did not bring her a bag sealed full of metal that was weighty, were it either plats, coin, counters, or such like. Then, quoth she, I will answer no further. And then I used my Lord Mayor's advice and bestowed her in Brideswell, where the masters and I saw her punished. And being well whipped, she said that the devil stood at her elbow in my study and willed her to deny it. But so soon as she was upon the cross to be punished, he gave her over, and thus, my singular good lord, I end this tragical part of this wicked woman. Mr. Knoll of the court has lately been here in London. He caused his man to give a blow unto a carman. His man hath struck the carman with the pummel of his sword, and therewith have broken his skull and killed him. Mr. Knoll and his man are likely to be indicted, whereof I am sure to be much troubled, what with letters and his friends, and what by other means, as in the very like case heretofore I have seen, even with the same man. Here are sundry young gentlemen that use the court that most commonly term themselves gentlemen. When any of these have done anything amiss, and are complained of, or arrested for debt, they run unto me, and no other excuse or answer can make, but say, I am a gentleman, and being a gentleman, I am not thus to be used as a slave and a cullion's hands. I know not what other parley Mr. Noel can plead, but this I say, the fact is foul. God sent him good deliverance. I think in my conscience that he makes no reckoning of the matter. Upon Friday last, we sat at the Justice Hall at Newgate from seven in the morning until seven at night. Amongst our travails, this one matter tumbled out by the way, that one Watton, a gentleman born, and sometime a merchantman of good credit, who, falling by time into decay, kept an alehouse at Smart's Key near Billingsgate, and after, for some misdemeanour being put down, he reared up a new trade of life, and in the same house he procured all the cut purses about this city to repair to his said house. There was a schoolhouse set up to learn young boys to cut purses. There were hung up two devices, the one was a pocket, the other a purse, the pocket had in it certain counters and was hung about with hawk's bells, and over the top did hang a little sacring bell, that is, the bell rung at the elevation of the host, and he that could take out a counter without any noise was allowed to be a public foister, and he that could take out a piece of silver out of the purse without the noise of any of the bells, he was adjudged a judicial nipper. Note, a foister is a pickpocket, and a nipper is termed a pickpurse or a cut purse. Our next report is from the 10th of January 1863 from the Daily Telegraph. The Metropolitan Railway is opened. New brooms sweep clean, says the proverb, and if solid excellence of work coupled with newness can ensure efficiency and consequent success, 
the Metropolitan Railway Company will sweep all before it. New indeed looks everything on the three and a half mile route from Paddington to Holborn Hill. The platforms at the neat spick and span stations have the appearance of well scrubbed deal tables in servants' halls. The paint asserts its freshness in a prevailing smell of turps. The lamps are polished like claret glasses for a dinner party. The line itself partakes the general aspect and the metals so smoothly laid on longitudinal instead of transverse sleepers are undinted by the pressure and friction of continually passing trains, whilst the very policemen and ticket porters are in new clothes. In short, everything yesterday contributed to the formation of a picture that would have gladdened the heart of a Dutch housewife. At one o'clock, members of both houses of legislature and of the Corporation of the City of London and men of note in various capacities assembled at the yet unfinished station in Bishop's Road, where the Metropolitan Railway takes its source from the terminus of the Great Western. The assembly, numbering between 600 and 700 and including many ladies, were on this occasion private guests of the Metropolitan Company, invited to a trip of inspection and to a banquet at the temporary terminus in Farringdon Street. Two trains were in waiting to convey them thither, each being drawn by two engines, and consisting of five of the immense carriages which have been built to run on the broad gauge of this railway. Lofty as well as wide, the carriages of each class offer comfortable accommodation to all of those who may be disposed to travel by them. Their roof is a curve or arch, and they are lit from the top by gas, which is carried in a collapsing tank. Six persons of more than average dimension may sit on either side of the second and third class carriages, though the divisions in the first class apportion this liberal allowance of space among only five occupants in a row. The locomotives attached to the first train yesterday were the Locust and the Bay, two engines of great power and improved construction. They gave off a good deal of steam in the course of their journey, but this will not be the case henceforth, an efficient condensing apparatus being fitted to each engine. The cause of the vapoury clouds yesterday was the long delay at the stations. The actual run occupied but 20 minutes, reckoned by the time that the trains were in. The Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello and a Happy New Year to you from the Witnesses of History podcast. And this edition, all our stories come from London. And we start on the 3rd of January in 1911 with this report by Philip Gibbs. Pursuing a gang of jewel robbers who had killed a policeman, the police cornered suspects, including it was thought a dangerous criminal called Peter the Painter, in 100 Sydney Street, Mile End Road. The affair caused an outcry against foreign immigrants, political refugees, and the East End anarchist underworld of Russian and German Jews, to which the Sydney Street gunmen were thought to belong. This is the Siege of Sydney Street, 3rd of January, 1911. 
For some reason, which I have forgotten, I went very early that morning to the Chronicle office and was greeted by the news editor with a statement that a hell of a battle was raging in Sydney Street. He advised me to go and look at it. I took a taxi and drove to the corner of that street where I found a dense crowd observing the affair as far as they dared peer round the angle of the walls from adjoining streets. Heedless at the moment of danger, which seemed to me ridiculous, I stood boldly opposite Sydney Street and looked down its length of houses. Immediately in front of me, four soldiers of one of the guards' regiments lay on their stomachs, protected from the dirt of the road by newspaper sandwich boards, firing their rifles at a house halfway down the street. Another young guardsman, leaning against a wall, took random shots at intervals while he smoked a woodbine. As I stood near him, he winked and said, What a game! It was something more than a game. Bullets were flicking off the wall like peas, plugging holes into the dirty yellow brick and ricocheting fantastically. One of them took a neat chip out of a policeman's helmet and he said, Well, I'll be blowed, and laughed in a foolish way. It was before the war when we learned to know more about the meaning of bullets. Another struck a stick on which a journalistic friend of mine was leaning in an easy, graceful way. His support and his dignity suddenly departed from him. That's funny, he said seriously, as he stole his stick cut neatly in half at his feet. A cinematograph operator, standing well inside Sydney Street, was winding his handle vigorously, quite oblivious of the whiz of bullets which were being fired at a slanting angle from the house, which seemed to be the target of the prostrate guardsman. A large police inspector of high authority shouted a command to his men, What's all that nonsense? Clear the people back. Clear them right back. We don't want a lot of silly corpses lying around. A cordon of police pushed back the dense crowd, treading on the toes of those who would not move fast enough. I found myself in a group of journalists. Get back there, shouted the police. But we were determined to see the drama out. It was more sensational than any movie show. Immediately opposite was a tall gin palace, the rising sun. Some strategists said, that's the place for us. We raced across before the police could outflank us. A Jewish publican stood in the doorway sullenly. What do you want? he asked. Your roof, said one of the journalists. A quid each and worth it, said the Jew. At that time, before the era of paper money, some of us carried golden sovereigns in our pockets, one to a quid. Most of the others did, but as usual, I had not more than 18 pence. A friend lent me the necessary coin, which the Jew slipped into his pocket as he led me past. Twenty of us, at least, gained access to the roof of the rising sun. It was a good vantage point, or OP, as we have should have called it later in history. It looked right across to the house in Sydney Street, in which Peter the painter and his friends were defending themselves to the death. A tall, thin house of three storeys, with dirty window blinds. In the house, immediately opposite, were some more guardsmen with pillows and mattresses stuffed into the windows in the nature of sandbags as used in trench warfare. We could not see the soldiers, but we could see the effect of their intermittent fire, which had smashed every pane of glass and kept chipping off bits of brick in the anarchist's abode. The street had been cleared of all onlookers, but a group of detectives slunk along the walls on the anarchist side of the street at such an angle that they were safe from the slanting fire of the enemy. They had to keep very close to the wall because Peter and his pals were dead shots and maintained something like a barrage fire with their automatics. 
Any detective or policeman who showed himself would have been sniped in a second and these men were out to kill. The thing became a bore as I watched it for an hour or more, during which time Mr Winston Churchill, who was then Home Secretary, came to take command of active operations, thereby causing an immense amount of ridicule in next day's papers. With a bowler hat pushed firmly down on his bulging brow and one hand in his breast pocket like Napoleon on the field of battle, he peered round the corner of the street and afterwards, as he learned, as we learned, ordered up some field guns to blow the house to bits. That never happened for a reason which we on the rising sun were quick to see. In the top floor room of the anarchist house we observed a gas jet burning and presently some of us noticed the white ash of burnt paper fluttering out of a chimney pot. The burning documents, said one of my friends. They were burning more than that. They were setting fire to the house, upstairs and downstairs. The window curtains were first to catch a light, then volumes of black smoke through which little tongues of flame licked up, poured through the empty window frames. They must have used paraffin to help the progress of the fire, for the whole house was burning with amazing rapidity. Did you ever see such a game in London? exclaimed the man next to me on the roof of the public house. For a moment I thought I saw one of the murderers standing on the windowsill, but it was a blackened curtain which suddenly blew outside the window frame and dangled on the sill. A moment later I had one quick glimpse of a man's arm with a pistol in his hand. He fired, and there was a quick flash. At the same moment a volley of shots ran out from the guardsman opposite. It is certain that they killed the man who had shown himself, for afterwards they found his body, or a bit of it, with a bullet through the skull. It was not long afterwards that the roof fell in with an upward rush of flame and sparks. The inside of the house, from top to bottom, was a furnace. The detectives, with revolvers ready, now advanced in Indian file. One of them ran forward and kicked at the front door. It fell in and a sheet of flame leaped out. No other shot was fired from within. Peter the painter and his fellow bandits were charred cinders in the bonfire they had made. Well, that was a report on one set of criminals in 1911, January 1911. Here are some more London criminals from a few hundred years earlier. This is the Recorder of London reporting to Lord Burley in 1581, as recorded by William Fleetwood. Upon Wednesday last, a French merchant, in a bag sealed, delivered to a carrier's wife of Norwich £40 to be carried to Norwich. She secretly conveyed the money to a house a good way off from the inn, and within a quarter of an hour the French merchant came again to see his money packed up. But the woman denied that ever she received any one penny with such horrible protestations as I never heard before. Mr Secretary Walsingham wrote me his letters for the aid of the Frenchman, and after great search made, the money was found and restored. She, not knowing of the same, I examined her in my study privately, but no means she would confess the same, but she did bequeath herself to the devil, both body and soul, if she had the money or ever saw it. And this was her craft, that she then had not the money, and indeed she said the truth, for it was either at her friend's, where she left it, or else delivered. And then I, perceiving her drift, I asked her whether the French merchant did not bring her a bag sealed full of metal that was weighty, were it either plats, coin, counters, or such like. Then, quoth she, I will answer no further. And then I used my Lord Mayor's advice and bestowed her in Brideswell, where the masters and I saw her punished. 
and being well whipped, she said that the devil stood at her elbow in my study and willed her to deny it. But so soon as she was upon the cross to be punished, he gave her over, and thus, my singular good Lord, I end this tragical part of this wicked woman. Mr. Knoll of the court has lately been here in London. He caused his man to give a blow unto a carman. His man hath struck the carman with the pummel of his sword, and therewith hath broken his skull and killed him. Mr. Knoll and his man are likely to be indicted, whereof I am sure to be much troubled, what with letters and his friends, and what by other means, as in the very like case heretofore I have seen, even with the same man. Here are sundry young gentlemen that use the court that most commonly turn themselves gentlemen. When any of these have done anything amiss, and are complained of, or arrested for debt, they run unto me, and no other excuse or answer can make, but say, I am a gentleman, and being a gentleman, I am not thus to be used as a slave and a cullion's hands. I know not what other parley Mr. Noel can plead, but this I say, the fact is foul. God sent him good deliverance. I think in my conscience that he makes no reckoning of the matter. Upon Friday last, we sat at the Justice Hall at Newgate from seven in the morning until seven at night. Amongst our travails, this one matter tumbled out by the way, that one Watton, a gentleman board, and sometime a merchantman of good credit, who, falling by time into decay, kept an alehouse at Smart's Key near Billingsgate, and after, for some misdemeanour being put down, he reared up a new trade of life, and in the same house he procured all the cut purses about this city to repair to his said house. There was a schoolhouse set up to learn young boys to cut purses. There were hung up two devices. The one was a pocket, the other a purse. The pocket had in it certain counters and was hung about with hawk's bells, and over the top did hang a little sacring bell, that is, the bell rung at the elevation of the host, and he that could take out a counter without any noise was allowed to be a public foister, and he that could take out a piece of silver out of the purse without the noise of any of the bells, he was adjudged a judicial nipper. Note, a foister is a pickpocket, and a nipper is termed a pickpurse or a cut purse. Our next report is from the 10th of January 1863 from the Daily Telegraph. The Metropolitan Railway is opened. New brooms sweep clean, says the proverb, and if solid excellence of work coupled with newness can ensure efficiency and consequent success, the Metropolitan Railway Company will sweep all before it. New indeed looks everything on the three and a half mile route from Paddington to Holborn Hill. The platforms at the neat spick-and-span stations have the appearance of well-scrubbed deal tables in servants' halls. The paint asserts its freshness in a prevailing smell of turps. The lamps are polished like claret glasses for a dinner party. The line itself partakes the general aspect, and the metals so smoothly laid on longitudinal instead of transverse sleepers are undinted by the pressure and friction of continually passing trains, whilst the very policemen and ticket porters are in new clothes. In short, everything yesterday contributed to the formation of a picture that would have gladdened the heart of a Dutch housewife. At one o'clock, members of both houses of legislature and of the Corporation of the City of London and men of note in various capacities assembled at the yet unfinished station in Bishop's Road, where the Metropolitan Railway takes its source from the terminus of the Great Western. 
The assembly, numbering between 600 and 700 and including many ladies, were on this occasion private guests of the Metropolitan Company, invited to a trip of inspection and to a banquet at the temporary terminus in Farringdon Street. Two trains were in waiting to convey them thither, each being drawn by two engines, and consisting of five of the immense carriages which have been built to run on the broad gauge of this railway. Lofty as well as wide, the carriages of each class offer comfortable accommodation to all of those who may be disposed to travel by them. Their roof is a curve or arch, and they are lit from the top by gas, which is carried in a collapsing tank. Six persons of more than average dimension may sit on either side of the second and third class carriages, though the divisions in the first class apportion this liberal allowance of space among only five occupants in a row. The locomotives attached to the first train yesterday were the Locust and the Bay, two engines of great power and improved construction. They gave off a good deal of steam in the course of their journey, but this will not be the case henceforth, an efficient condensing apparatus being fitted to each engine. The cause of the vapoury clouds yesterday was the long delay at the stations. The actual run occupied but 20 minutes, reckoned by the time that the trains were in motion, but the stoppages prolonged this period into an hour and a half. It's interesting to note that a journey over the same tracks on the Circle Line today will probably take you about just as long. Our final report from the 24th of January in 1684 by John Evelyn is a seasonal reminder of how cold it can be in London. This was the Great Frost. The frost still continuing, more and more severe, the Thames before London was planted with booths in formal streets, as in a city or a continual fair, all sorts of trades and shops furnished and full of commodities, even to a printing press, where the people and ladies took a fancy to have their names printed and the day and year set down when printed on the Thames. This humour took so universally that twas estimated the printer gained five pounds a day for printing a line only at sixpence a name, besides what he got by ballads, etc. Coaches now plied from Westminster to the Temple and from several other stairs to and fro, as in the streets, also on sleds, sliding with skates. There was likewise ball-baiting, horse and coach races, puppet plays and interludes, cooks and tippling and lewder places, so it seemed to be a bacchanalia, triumph or carnival on the water, whilst it was a severe judgment upon the land, the trees not only splitting as if lightning struck, but men and cattle perishing in diverse places, and the very seas so locked up with ice that no vessels could stir out or come in. The fish and birds and all our exotic plants and greens universally perishing, many parks of deer destroyed, and of all sorts of fuel so dear that there was great contributions to preserve the poor alive. Nor was this severe weather much less intense in most parts of Europe, even as far as Spain and the most southern tracks. London, by reason of the excessive coldness of the air, hindering the ascent of the smoke, was so filled with the fuliginous steam of the sea coal that hardly could one see cross the street, and this filling the lungs with its gross particles exceedingly obstructed the breast, so as one could scarce breathe. There was no water to be had from the pipes and engines, nor could the brewers and diverse other tradesmen work, and every moment was full of disastrous accidents, etc.
you've been listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matias, www.soundimage.org. <laughs>